0: Well, good morning, third period. If you'd open your Bibles to Mark chapter 12, you guys will get the best education. That's how third period always works. We are in Mark chapter 12, going through our study mark, and I'll begin talking about a phrase that I just learned. I may sound like an ignoramus if you already know it, but I learned a new phrase that I had to look up because I kept hearing it, and it's called virtue signaling. Now, you may or may not be familiar with this term, so this is either going to be an introduction to something you don't know or a reintroduction to something that you think you do. I learned that the phrase was first coined in 2016 in a British magazine, so it's been around for a while. There it was used to describe the way in which many people say or write things to indicate that they are virtuous to those who read. Since then, it has become known to mean really the act of speaking or behaving or posting or writing in a way that's meant to demonstrate your so-called moral goodness. Now, an example of this might be sharing a particular status or changing a profile picture on social media to support some cause. It might be participation in one of those viral challenges where people do various strange things to signal their empathy towards a particular disease, uh, regardless if they ever actually end up contributing money to fight to that disease, but they've gone through this challenge. It might include a person or a business displaying a sign to indicate that they uh, are something or not something. It might even include a company changing its terms of service following a public controversy so that they can improve their public image. There's lots of examples of what it can be. And this practice, whether intentional or not, has become quite popular. And it's become quite popular because one of the crucial aspects of virtue signaling is that it doesn't require you to actually do anything virtuous which is kind of strange. The main goal is actually not to have some meaningful impact on some perceived badness in the world as much as it is to impact others' perception of your goodness. In other words, virtue signaling at its worst is about the approval of men. It's more about keeping up with appearances so that others think better of you or at least a certain way about you, whether you are that way, virtuous or not. Now, not everyone does this, and if you have done one of the things I gave as an example, I'm not trying to call anyone out, but it is to suggest that the phenomenon is real and it's not exclusive to the secular world. Sadly, the church where virtue is expected in some ways it has become a pervasive problem. And I would think it's maybe best described this way, that virtue signaling is the smoke that rises from the fires of hypocrisy. So hypocrisy is actually one of the strongest and most frequent accusations that Jesus makes against the Jewish leaders. And the Bible has a lot to say about hypocrisy. It tells us that a hypocrite is someone who puts on a mask and pretends to basically be something that he or she is not. Now, hypocrisy is really to claim to know or to believe or to follow certain convictions, but then to behave in conflict with those convictions. It's spiritual pretending, if you will. Now, during the last week of his life, on really the last day that he is teaching in the temple, Jesus is challenged by every Jewish leader imaginable, the chief priests, the elders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the final group that Jesus engages with is a group called the scribes. And the scribes are arguably the most powerful and the most pretentious of all of these Jewish leaders. Now, historically, these men became responsible for copying or making copies of the ancient texts, which were very important as they went in and out of exile. Eventually, these guys, the scribes, really became known as the authorities on the scriptures, the authorities on the Bible, so much so that the title scribe came to be known as the guardian of the law. I mean, these guys knew their Bibles. They were the authorities on its interpretation, its meaning, and all that. So when the scribes come to confront Jesus and test him, they really ask some big questions about the law. And they say, look, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And so they are the authorities, so they already know the answers, so they think. And Jesus responds by telling them, basically the whole law is summarized by loving god and loving people now they approve of jesus answer because they are the authority it's like well very good you are correct rabbi because they are condescending to him in many ways and then they proceed to add more they actually say oh yes you are correct Love is the most important thing, and love is even more important than all the offerings and all the sacrifices and really all the other things that the law requires. And Jesus is like, And he praises what we'll call their virtue signaling. And I call it that because we start to learn what it's really about. See, on the surface, these guys look like varsity Jews, right? They seem like the iconic, perfect example of what God would expect and desire in a religious worshiper. But as the narrative continues, you begin to see that there's something very different going on here. Behind the words, below the surface, Jesus knows that the scribes are pretenders. And the pretentious popular, hyperspiritual religion of the scribes really provides a really stark contrast with what we see next, which is a very simple but genuine worship of a poor widow. So there are these two pictures kind of going up against one another. One is signaling, and the other is quite sincere. One is big and loud and ostentatious, And one is small and obscure, and one is admired while the other is ignored, if not mocked, a little bit. And one, most importantly, is condemned by Jesus, and one is praised by Him. So let's take a look in Mark chapter 12 at these two pictures. We'll begin with the first, beginning in verse 38. And it says this, And in his teaching, obviously Jesus, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Oh, let's just pause there. So as I said, the scribes have been asking Jesus questions about what commandment was the greatest, and he gave his answer, and they gave their response, which again was this idea of like, oh yes, love is most important, more important than all the other sacrifices and all the other offerings. And Jesus is like, whoa, you guys got this correct? In fact, that's so good, you're really close to the kingdom of God. It's not really far. He praises them in many ways or at least affirms their answer that they gave on the surface. And then he proceeds to teach the crowd something about the scribes. He basically says, wow, that's correct. Great. The love is most important. By the way, the scribes get it wrong when it comes to the Messiah. They don't read the Bible correctly. (laughs) What? And then he goes further as they're likely standing right there. And he's like, beware of the scribes. That's like Pretty gangster to say that, right, right in front of them. Yeah, your teaching's great. Beware the scribes. And he doesn't say, beware the scribes' teaching. Because on the surface, much of the scribes' teaching is correct. But he actually is going to attack, if you will, or admonish and warn about their hypocrisy. The men who had just claimed how important it was to love God and to love people, more important than all the offerings. These are the very guys that we learn spend most of their time exploiting people, likely in the name of God. Now, he calls into question some of their practices, and he begins to list them out. He talks about the practice of walking around in these full-length prayer shawls with tassels on each corner, right? And they would literally be dressed up all ornately like these kind of like blanket-like mantles, and they were designed to distinguish the scribes as important, as wealthy, as honorable, all these things. And so they would put on these robes, and they would make their way to the synagogues. And along the way, Through the marketplace, as they're making their way to the synagogue, the expectation, if not requirement, was everybody who wasn't laboring at the moment would stand and rise in honor of them. And when they entered into the synagogues, they had the best seats, which were likely right in front facing the congregation, reserved for them. And so, dressed up, being praised, walk in, and everybody's like, ooh, ah, these guys are set up as the ones who are most honored now i would argue that much like the worst prosperity preachers of today these we'll just call them celebrity scribes leveraged what might be described as their anointing to take positions of honor and really build themselves a platform and Jesus says, beware of the scribes. And the reason why he says that is because quite often, congregations are actually ready and apt to overlook this kind of stuff. Like it's obvious objectively. When you're not in it, they like, dude, that's weird. Like how much honor you get and praise and all these things. But the congregations are often in like, yeah, you can start talking about the church, today's church a little bit here. They will overlook some of the bad stuff because, well, this man is so godly. He seems so spiritual. He seems so biblical. He's such a good teacher. His ministry is so effective that they overlook what are obvious indulgences. Well, Jesus goes below the surface. And he says, these same men that have all the respect and all the honor and all the Bible answers and are the ones who are teaching and and doing all these things, he says, these are the same men who devour widows' houses and for pretense make long prayers. Now, no matter what, devouring widows' houses can't be a good thing. Okay? So, we're like, well, what, what does that mean? Well, it can mean a couple things. Some argue that the scribes were often like lawyers, and they were utilized by many of the newly widowed women to help them settle or or arrange their estates. And in doing that, these men would often end up robbing them, exploiting them, persuading them to, to give the money to them or to the temple, but taking advantage of them anyway. Others suggest that during this time, most scribes actually lived off of subsidies because they were forbidden from actually taking a wage as a vocational scribe. And so they would get supporters. And supporters were relatively easy to come by because supporting a scribe was considered kind of good, worthy, meritorious work, like that was a good thing to do. And you should, you should support those scribes who are the most devoted, the most pious. And how do you prove that you're most pious? Well, you make long, very pretentious prayers to like show how spiritual I am, and then you would support that particular scribe. And the ones that were most apt, or the majority of people that supported these kinds of scribes were often the most vulnerable the weak, the widows, the ones in most need, who wanted the most spiritual blessing and help. And so the widows, in this sense, would lose their livelihood supporting these scribes. So these men would literally pray, P-R-A-Y, in order to pray, P-R-E-Y, on the weak and the vulnerable in their community. Back then, it was the scribes in Judaism, today perhaps it could be described as the TV evangelist in the church or others. Back then it would have been prayers. Maybe today it's podcasts. Back then it was shekels, and today it literally, if you do any statistical evaluation of the prosperity gospel, today it's social security checks of those who are most vulnerable. Now, Essentially what these men were doing was building their reputations and their influence and their platforms rather than doing anything for the kingdom of God. And that building required exploiting those who were weak for personal gain, which the term spiritual abuse is used probably too much in our world today. But if anything can be described as spiritual abuse, I would argue that men practicing religion for their own personal self-advancement especially in the midst of exploiting those who are vulnerable probably qualifies. Now think about this though. These guys look good. Literally look good. They sounded good. But despite how they looked and the way that they were respected and the way that they dressed and the way that they had all the best seats despite even the correct biblical answers they had. That's a whole other concern. Like they said some right things, a lot of right things about the Bible. The way to evaluate the sincerity and the purity of the religion was to consider their disposition towards those in most in need. Their disposition towards people like widows. And in that case, it was horrible. Now, James tells us in his epistle, chapter 1, verse 27, that religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, to care for those who need the most care. These religious leaders, these scribes, were actually the shepherds that the prophet Ezekiel warned about hundreds of years earlier. Those sheep in Ezekiel 44, or shepherds in Ezekiel 44, that fed themselves and not the sheep. That left the sheep to become prey and food for the wild animals. See, despite all spiritual appearances, despite all of the signaling that seemed to indicate that these guys were virtuous, Despite all the right Bible answers, and there were many, Jesus says the scribes are going to be severely punished for their hypocrisy. I think it's noteworthy that as you read the words of Jesus throughout the Gospels, I think, if at all, he does warn us about wolves, but he explicitly warns us about wolves in sheep's clothing which is the same thing that the Apostle Paul does when he leaves the Ephesian elders. He says, watch out for those who come from within, the wolves who seek to devour, kill, and destroy. Those are the leaders, the pastors, and yes, the brothers and sisters who call themselves Christians, who present as very self-sacrificing, but are largely self-serving. They look good, sound good, but ultimately they're about themselves and not God. So we have a picture here that's really bad, and it provides us a contrast for the next picture we get to show the difference. If you look in Mark chapter 12, verse 41, you couldn't get a stronger contrast, at least as an example of faith or worship. And this example, seemingly insignificant, Some might even argue, at least in this context, laughable in terms of this offering from a poor widow. Verse 41 says this, After all this exchange with the scribes, he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all that she had to live on. So if maybe you're like me, maybe you're not, I'm a people watcher. love to watch people, sit at the airport, watch people, sit in restaurants, eavesdrop on conversations. It's fantastic, right? My wife will say, what are you doing? Like, you're not going to believe what's happening over here. It's incredible, right? So I just have that tendency. That's what Jesus is doing here. He's sitting across from the treasury. He's just watching people, watching people go through offerings. Now, the temple treasury is an interesting place. It's obviously a treasury in the temple, and it's where the offerings were given. There were 13 different boxes or chests that were used. They were uh, often called trumpets because they were brass and they were kind of like upside down trumpets, a narrow top and then uh, a wide bottom. And they're brass so when you heard the coinage, because there's no paper money happening at this point, right, it's, it's, you can hear it clang. So you'd hear the offerings uh, going into the receptacles. Now each chest had an inscription on it because each chest was specific or a specific kind of offering. So there were those that was new shekel dues, old shekel dues, bird offerings, young birds for whole offering, wood, gold for the mercy seat, frankincense, free will offerings. There was all kinds of different kinds of contributions you could make. And because of Passover, we've already said there's like an increased number of people in Jerusalem. Like literally some people say up, upwards of several million people. And so it's a very busy time. Lots of people are giving their offerings. And so people are making their way through these 13 chests and they're dropping their coins into there. Probably sounds a lot like Coinstar where things are like, you know, falling in. You can hear it all. Now, this was a very public display. And because it's Passover, there's so many people, there is all kinds of opportunity for showboating. And so you can imagine as... Jesus is not the only one watching, everyone's probably watching, and a hush would probably fall upon the crowd as notable people approached to give very large sums, many of which they wouldn't have been able to carry themselves, they're like, back the camel up, beep, beep, right, and they drop it in, it's like, and they're just standing there like, you know, and they're feeling pretty good about what they're doing, and other people are probably feeling pretty good about them, like, whoa look at what jethro gave that's like serious coinage everyone sees these gifts people are probably captivated by the large sums of just impressed and you know that they're going to think best of them like oh wow that guy god loves that guy i mean that guy is blessed what whoa how benevolent how amazing like oh that's awesome that guy's rad But Jesus sees the ones that no one is probably celebrating. Jesus sees the ones that no one even gives a second look at. They don't captivate the flesh. So as he's watching, a poor widow comes up and puts two small copper coins. These coins are very thin. They're literally called lepta, which means peeled. They're so thin that they're nearly worthless. Each one was worth like a quarter of a shekel. So she puts in very little money. And unlike the big coin star guy, she's like, ding, ding. That's it. Not very impressive. Not enough to grab people's attention. But Jesus says, this woman, he's like, hey guys, guys, this woman, the one you guys weren't looking at, she gave more than everyone else combined. He declares that everyone, minus her, has given out of their abundance, out of their extra, out of their surplus, out of their leftovers, but this woman gave everything she had to live on. Everything she had. Now, it's interesting, she had two coins. You think, well, I wouldn't Blame her if she kept at least one to buy something. But nope, she gave it all. She chose to give her best. He chose to give her most. She chose to give her last to God. Despite what everyone else might have seen, might have assumed, Jesus knows that she is more than anybody else, living out the very commandment that he just talked about with the scribes. She is loving the Lord with all of her heart, with all of her soul, with all of her strength, with all of her stuff. Everything. Now this comparatively small offering, as I said, was not big enough to capture anyone's attention. But here's the thing about the contributions in the treasury the amount and the kind of contribution would have been declared audibly and publicly for everyone to hear. So, let's just think for a second. How would that make you feel? How would it make you feel? And this is not to guilt you into giving more. This is not what this sermon's about. But how would you feel if what you gave, time, energy, treasure, was publicly declared every Sunday. Tom Johnson spent 17 hours in Restoration Kids. Good job, Tom. Tom's like, darn right. And then whoever else is like, well, I spent 26. I mean, what would, that, what would the feelings be? Because there's two you could have. There's lots of others. There's pride. Feeling good about what you did. There's shame feeling bad comparatively to what you did. I'm not even telling you how you should feel, but how would that feel? And what would that do to your tendency to give anything at all? Because she knew this was going to happen. And as people, he says, not like large some people, okay, now little some, as she's probably right between two big coin star guys. She comes in. um, quarter of a shekel for uh, bird offerings that's it she didn't care she knew that was going to happen but she had no concern for the opinions of men none how different she was from the scribes the scribes who desired and even expected people to be impressed by their robes and to rise when they walked by This poor woman likely didn't even want to draw attention to herself because she wasn't there for men. She was there for God. She didn't sacrifice to impress men. She did so to praise God. And the significance of the offering was certainly lost on the public, but guess what? It wasn't lost on Jesus. And that's the only person that really matters. Jesus Interestingly, it doesn't commend her for her faith that he did for other people at different times throughout his ministry. But it seems like here he wants to emphasize instead how men and God see these things very differently. One judges by appearances, and the other sees the heart. So you take these two pictures the scribes, who, in many ways, if we're honest, On the surface, we'd like to be. Have all the answers. Be respected. Have people believe that we're good. Who wants to be the poor widow that looks like she has nothing to offer? See, men are easily swayed and captivated by appearances, but God never is, right? He sees that the scribes, they are flamboyant, they are extravagant, they are loud, they are charismatic. The widow is simple, relatively unnoticed, The scribes seek to impress others with their long prayers, their tremendous worship. And the woman is silent in her worship. The scribes seek after the approval of men, and they do so to support themselves by manipulating people. The widow, she only cares for the approval of God, and she gives all that she has, trusting what? God will provide. God will provide. I need not hold something back for myself. See, God's not fooled. We can fool everyone we know. We can even be self-deceived. But God sees our heart. And in this case with the scribes, they are, dare I say, very American. They are very interested in what they can get. And only what they can get. I would argue that's how many of us approach our spirituality, our faith, our Christianity. What can I get? What can I get from this service? What am I going to get from this church? She approaches the Lord and worship of Him by what she can give. Now, this scene echoes a verse that I think is really uh, convicting. And by convicting, uh, I mean it's easy to understand. It's difficult to live. Jesus, in his Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 6, in verse 1, he says something very plain. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you'll have no reward from heaven and your Father who is in heaven. You know this reminded me of the first time I read it? which I've read it many times, but this week, it reminded me of some people I won't condemn because I know perhaps their heart's in the right place, but it's those people who make those viral videos of them like secretly um, like feeding homeless or or doing something, like it's like a video that's like, uh, usually it's pretty emotional. Like, I always wonder like, why are you making that video? And maybe it's to affect change in others. Maybe it's to inspire. I have no idea where their heart is. But it's a lot of practicing righteousness so that others will see you. That's where our culture's at. And what does it say? For if you do this, then you have no reward from your father, implying you'll probably have rewards from others. Lots of likes. Lots of appreciation. But not from the fathers in heaven. Now, we read that and we're like, okay, like, it's a pretty serious warning actually, and I think the seriousness of it is most explicitly understood in a simple story in the book of Acts. In Acts 4, right, the church has been born, Uh, they are, uh, Peter and John, some of the leaders have been arrested at least at once, and they've testified to, they're going to teach for Christ and obey God rather than men, and all these things happen, and so... In Acts 4, the church is really kind of getting some rhythms. They're gathering. Uh, They are uh, sitting under the teaching of the apostles who are telling them about the crucifixion and resurrection because they spent, obviously, their lives with Jesus. Uh, And they are giving towards one another. And so much so that the apostle Luke says in Luke 4 that there wasn't a needy person among them. Why? Why? For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds to lay at the apostles' feet. So not told to do it, they are selling their homes and selling their land and bringing the money and giving it to the apostles who are distributing it to those who have needs. And so no one has needs. And one disciple, Acts 4 says, a guy named Barnabas, which I'm sure you've heard about, he was the guy that first stood up for Paul the apostle when everyone was scared of him, became a missionary with him. They say he has a piece of land, and he sold this field, and it says he brought all the proceeds to lay at the apostles' feet. Like, okay. Well, Acts chapter 5 tells a story of another couple who actually also had a field and also sold it. And their name were Ananias and Sapphira. And together, they brought a portion of the proceeds to lay at the apostles' feet for distribution, And according to Acts chapter 5, it says that they kept back some of the proceeds for themselves. Now, we have to be careful because we might misunderstand what's going on here. It's important to understand that the couple was free to do whatever they wanted with their land. No one required them to sell it. No one required them to give money to the apostles for it. Like, that was their decision. No one said how much money they had to give. But what they decided to do was sell the land and then come and say, oh, yeah, we sold it for this month and we're bringing all the proceeds when they hadn't. It was a nice example of signaling that the apostles might be maybe more impressed, that the Christian brothers and sisters might appreciate their benevolence. And so Peter addresses them and he says, why are you lying? Like when you had the land, you could do with it what you want, but why are you bringing in pretending? And he says, you're not lying to men, although they were. He says, you're lying to God. And I hope you understand why we lie. Why anyone lies. Anyone and everyone lies because they have forgotten the gospel and their approved identity in Christ, and they want others, whoever they're lying to in particular, to think better of them. And so he says, you're lying to God by pretending that you were sacrificing more than you actually were. Ananias and Sapphira aren't rewarded for the great portion that I'm sure they gave. On the contrary, in one of the most disturbing passages in the book of Acts, they drop dead. Because although men were fooled, God was not. Now, What do we learn? Well, virtue signaling and pretending spirituality and trying to make people think like you could fool a lot of people. But you cannot fool the Lord. We cannot pretend to be better than we are. And it is actually quite dangerous to do so in the eyes of the Lord. We live for the audience of one. And that one sees what is truly in our heart. He knows if our expressions of faith, our thoughts, our words, our actions, all these things, he knows whether they are rooted in self-interest or whether they are truly self-sacrificing. He knows whether we're out for glory for ourselves or whether we are dedicated to the glory of God should no one even know. He knows If those actions are one of two things, and it can only be one or two, if you are seeking for a love that you want, or you're responding to a love that you have in Christ, it's one or the other. You see, some seek to be good in order to obtain the love of men. We all do. Ed Welch, I believe, wrote a great book, When People Are Big and God Is Small. It's a little bit of a convicting book, so be careful. But it is that idea of like, when you're more fearful of looking bad in front of people, whatever that means, versus I'm more worried about looking bad than I am sinning or being hypocritical, you are living and seeking the approval of men. And this desire produces all kinds of virtue signaling. And it can sound very Christian and look very spiritual and even kind of hit like sounds like biblical. But it's fake spirituality because more than anything, you just don't want to be rejected or marginalized or, or, or viewed as inadequate by people. But we also have to be careful because we can leave a sermon like this and go like, I just need to be like the widow and give everything. Well, be careful there because there are those who seek to be good, not to obtain the love of men, but to obtain the love of God. Like you may not practice your righteousness to get the approval of men, but it's possible that you are doing these things because you are trying to earn favor and obtain the love of God. I would say that a poverty gospel like that It's just as dangerous as a prosperity gospel if what you're doing is motivated by earning credit with God or avoiding His wrath. Christ invites you to something totally different. He invites you to respond and to receive His gift of love. He is offering you something freely, to anyone who would repent of their badness and believe in his goodness. He invites you to be your true self that you might be afraid to be in front of others for fear of rejection. There's no fear of rejection. Do you understand? Like when the Bible says that when you were yet sinners, Christ died for you. Okay, So everyone here was not alive when that was written or when Christ was crucified. What that means is that he saw all of your sin. There's nothing that you could confess to Jesus if he goes, oh, shoot, ah, uh, I didn't account for that. Whoa, didn't know you were that bad. That's like, whoa, seriously. Jesus doesn't do that. I was telling the other service that, like, when I was a teacher, I loved butcher paper. Love butcher paper, right? Just like, love butcher paper. You can just write stuff all over it. Like, if I gave you a big butcher paper as long as this, you know, auditorium, and said, just go and write down all the sins you've ever committed. You realize, given infinite amount of time, you'd never be able to write down every sin. That's how unaware we are. But Jesus knows every single one and said, I love you. I'll forgive you. I'll forgive you of your guilt, and I'll cleanse you of your shame. There's no surprises. I, I know it all. And so therefore, is no fear of rejection, no fear of confession. He invites us to bring everything and anything, we, whatever we have, big or small, as long as it's actually all you have. Say, this is yours. He doesn't call us to prove how good and faithful we are publicly, but simply to admit that we are neither good or faithful enough to save ourselves privately and I believe it's Tim Keller who said it well, I don't want you to walk away thinking like, you need to think less of yourselves. You need to think you're badder than you think. It's not that you need to think less of yourself. It's that you need to think of yourself less. There's a big difference because Jesus thinks very highly of you, actually. Instead of living to prove my goodness to others, maybe we should consider adopting the status update of the Apostle Paul. It's the kind of status update where Paul reflects on, this is how I view myself, that if we were to put on Facebook or something, people would go, oh no. And they would comment like, no, you're not that bad. Don't think that, and you're gooder, and blah, 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 blah. Here's what Paul wrote. Imagine if he wrote this. It's in Romans chapter 7, and I'll close with this. He says, for I know this is a guy that knows the gospel. I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my flesh. For the desire to do what is good is with me, but there is no ability to do it. Whoa, Paul, you're not bad. And then he goes further to say in verse 24, Wretched man am I. Imagine putting that out. Wretched man am I. You're not wretched. You're, you're great. You're such a good friend. You're so wonderful, blah, blah, blah. He says, wretched man that I am. I know who I am. I know my flesh well. My heart's been transformed, but it's encased in this broken body of flesh. He said, who's going to deliver me? Who's going to deliver me this body of death? Just be gooder, Paul. Just think more positive thoughts. Just do gooder things and let other people know. And he says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. You want to signal something, signal that the goodness that we all need comes from Christ. And here's how you know, right? I've said this so many times, but I think it's a great test for you. When people ask you, hey, how's your walk? How's your relationship with Christ? I'll tell you right now, it doesn't matter what you say, but what are you thinking? in the quiet of your own heart and mind. Because when someone asks you how your faith is, how your walk is, how your spirituality, whatever form comes out, if your mind initially and primarily goes to the good and the bad things you've done, you're off gospel. It should primarily go to thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. If I'm bad, it's covered. I'm good, it's because of Him. It's about Christ. Think about His goodness because He died the death you deserved. And you're more sinful than you'd ever admit. But He lived the life that you were supposed to and you're more love than you could possibly imagine. And He gives that to you freely. Celebrate that. Rejoice in that. Rest in that. And don't worry about what men in this world think. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly.